You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Destruction, sorcerer of death's construction. In the fields of bodies burning. Machine keeps turning Death and hatred to mankind Poisoning their brainwashed minds Welcome to the Anarchist World This Week broadcast across Australia on the National Community Radio Satellite. Listen to the Anarchist World This Week, Australia's sacred cow, Slaughterhouse. Listen to analysis of local, national and international events. To analysis you'll never hear anywhere else. Welcome to the Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia by the National Community Radio Network. This program is coming to you from the studios of 3CR in Melbourne. 855 on your AM dial. It is streaming live on 3cr.org.au. The program is podcast. You can access the podcast by going to 3cr.org.au. This program will be podcast a few, maybe a week later, because currently the person who podcasts is having a well-deserved break. But it will be podcast, so don't despair. So people across Australia, north and south, east and west, round and round, you're listening to The Anarchist World this week. My name's Joseph Toscano. If you wonder what Anarchy is all about, anarchos without rulers. It's about creating a society without rulers. What gives rulers the ability to determine the lives of billions of people, as we're currently seeing around the world? Very simple, inequalities in power and wealth. So the anarchist struggle is the struggle to devolve or share power, possibly through direct democratic means where the people involved decision make that decision and then elect or appoint delegates to coordinate those decisions at a local, regional, national, international level, society where wealth is held in common and used for the common good. Now, people keep telling me the anarchists are radicals. We're not radicals. We're conservatives. What is more conservative than actually wanting people to be involved in their decision-making processes so they can determine what type of society they want to live in. What is radical about ensuring that everybody in society is able to survive and even prosper? What's so radical? To me, radicalism is allowing a dictator or even an elected leader to make decisions which affect millions of people. To me, radical is having billionaires at one end of the scale and people starving at the other end of the scale. That's radical. So as I said before, anarchism is a very, very, very conservative concept. And other people say to me, well, Joe, you're relying on the goodness, innate goodness of human beings. Uh Uh-uh. Uh-uh. It's the other way around. When we allow other people to make decisions for us. We are relying on their innate goodness. And we see over and over and over again what happens in those situations. Each and every one of us is born with feet of clay. We've all got a cloven hoof. 
We're all human. We all fail. We succeed. But the thing is that in an anarchist society, what happens is, because decision-making power is shared, what happens is those among us who have got more clay feet than anybody else are never in a position to dominate society and use a monopoly on the use of force to prosper at the expense of everybody else. So an anarchist society is a society which breaks down those hierarchical divisions which allow people to exert power and use their wealth to advance their own personal position at the expense of everybody else in society. So let's get it right. Anarchism isn't without rulers, isn't without rules. It's without rulers. It's about creating a society which you don't have rulers. Well, let's move on. Look, let's look at a few more pedestrian things. Now, there's nothing more pedestrian than ticking the box. Now, I don't know if you're in paid employment or you're self-employed or whatever, but there's a disease in this country. It's the disease of ticking the box, where every minute of every day, whether you're working for private enterprise or some public authority, whether it's, whether it's local, state or federal government, you're spending about 20 to 25% of your time going through compliance rituals. Now, these compliance rituals in part and parcel of an anarchist society, when a society, sorry, a, my apologies, I've gone bananas. They're part and parcel of a capitalist society, a private investment for private profit society. Because you can't really trust people. So you have all these little compliance boxes. And I'm seeing more and more and more Australian workers wasting their time ticking boxes and actually not doing the work which is required to ensure that everybody in society is able to survive and prosper. It's ticking the boxes. There is nothing more important than ticking the boxes. And what we've seen over the last 30, 40 years during the deregulation, privatisation, globalisation, corporatisation period is ticking the boxes has become a national addiction. That's right, a national addiction. People are so terrified of losing their jobs or not being promoted or not getting overtime that they spend hours, at least two of every eight hours in a working day, ticking boxes, that's right, and not providing services. Now, when the Productivity Commission, a relatively conservative body, talks about teaching and the fact that teachers are not able to teach because of so many compliance issues in the workforce, you begin to understand that this is a, a real issue. It is a real issue. Now, obviously, there are mechanisms via which you can check on people at the end of a project or maybe in the middle of a project. 
But having people tick boxes consistently, day after day after day, not only is a waste of time and effort, but more importantly, it diverts important human resources from dealing with the problems they're faced with. And to a significant degree, we continue to have the same problems, irrespective of how much money is poured into an issue, because so much of people's time is spent going through compliance rituals, which are about basically ensuring that a self-serving bureaucracy, whether it's in the private sector or the public sector, continues to be paid. How many managers who are responsible for these compliance issues are really necessary in any workforce in order to ensure that services are delivered? I know it may sound like, you know, a little problem, but it's not. Because take Alice Springs, for example. Now, currently, it's the flavour of the day. Prime Minister goes there, crime spree, broken glass, people being assaulted, increased domestic violence, or restrict alcohol. And let's look at the problem there. And to a significant degree, the problem that we're seeing there is a direct consequence of government policy. Especially during the last decade, during the uh, Morrison and uh, what was his name? We've forgotten his name, the previous Prime Minister, Turnbull time. Because specific policies were put in place to reverse changes which occurred in the 70s and 80s. Now, in Central Australia in the 70s and 80s, there was what was called an outstation movement. And what that meant is that people, Aboriginal people, who have been gathered together in these artificially created communities in the middle of nowhere with nothing to do, many of the more radical elements returned to country. They returned to country. And the outstation movement was a powerful movement in the 70s and 80s where people returned to their traditional lands. Now, over the last 10 years in remote Australia, what we've seen is the destruction of the outstation movement through the withdrawal of services to these communities, health services, education services, assistance with housing. The withdrawal of services, and this was government policy, to force people who had been in outstations to come back to these artificially created communities where you had different groups which may have had traditional um, differences pushed together. Like we saw at the end of the 19th century, the remnants of the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities you know, were uh, ushered into an apartheid-like um, system. So what happens over the last 10 years? Well, people drift. They drift from these artificially created communities into the towns, and they drift in the towns to access services. When they drift into the towns like Alice Springs, there's no housing, so people set up 
camp. And it's interesting that we call um, third world slum-like conditions, we call them town camps in this country, you know. It's got a nice ring about it, isn't it? Where people live cheek by jowl in the most basic conditions. And obviously in this type of situations, you will see the emergence of what we've seen in Alice Springs. Everything comes to a head. Now, obviously, the government of the day understands that these issues are more than, you know, banning alcohol or restricting alcohol sales. It's much more. It's about housing. It's about education. But the dilemma is most of the services which are delivered to these communities are not government services, but they're outsourced private services. And as we see, whether it's homelessness in an urban centre or whether it's the privatisation of the public housing um, struggle in Victoria, especially in New South Wales to a lesser degree, that when you privatise these services, that a significant amount of the money which goes into these privatised services goes into administration costs and profits. That's about 40%. Then you've got another 20%, which is lost, as I said before, in these compliance issues where people have to tick the boxes constantly. So the people at the receiving end don't actually receive the services which the taxpayer pays for. And no wonder, no wonder we see the same issues crop over up over and over and over and over again. And unless that is tackled, nothing will change. Now, obviously, in three or four days, Mr Dutton will find something else to, you know, carry on about. And the Alice Springs problem, in inverted commas, will disappear from the uh, headlines. But that doesn't mean the problems disappear. It's a little bit like all the floods we've had and the bushfires we had where because something doesn't appear on the media doesn't mean it has, it's been, res, been resolved. And if you go to these areas, you will see that people years later are still living in the same basic conditions. Because once again, we are relying on the private sector to provide essential services which should be provided by the government of the day. We see this in aged care. We've seen the disasters in aged care, we see it in early childhood development, we see it in the homelessness, and we see it in almost every aspect of living in this country. I mean, we, t we tend to kind of, you know, go from problem to problem to problem to problem to problem. At the end of the day, we don't never seem to be able to resolve these issues. And obviously, there are reasons and I'll talk about them in a minute, there are reasons we can never resolve these issues because in a country as rich as Australia, there are never enough resources to tackle these issues because so many corporations which have been given carte blanche in this country to do what they like are making, making such extraordinary profits for their major shareholders that there is never enough resources for the people who theoretically live in the Commonwealth of Australia. 
Listen to the Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia via the Community Radio Network. So it's about change. And change doesn't occur unless people are willing to agitate for that change. And you can't agitate for change if you don't understand the underlying issues, the way things are structured, what actually happens, why nothing ever changes. Let's move on. Let's move on. Robodebt. Now, currently, there is a Royal Commission into Robodebt, and that's one thing I must thank the Albanese-led Labor government for. They did promise a Royal Commission. We've got one. Now, Robodebt, in many regards, is a little bit like is what's happening to the outstation movement in remote Australia, where the outstation movement was defunded and people were forced to go back into these artificially created communities. Now, RoboDebt was another attack on the Australian people. Not specifically Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders, but anybody on any type of social security benefit. Let's not remember, we don't use the word welfare on the anarchist world this week. And we don't use the word dole. You know, dole out porridge from a bloody cup. It's social security benefits. We have a social security system. And the social security system is a two-way system, which we've seen has broken down in our springs. What it means is that people are actually not able to earn an income for a variety of reasons, whether they're elderly, whether they're accessing education, whether they can't find work, whether they're sick, whether they're disabled, receive some basic support from the taxpayer through the government of the day in order not to create the situation which we see in Alice Springs. It's a social security benefit. It benefits the people who receive it, may not be enough, but it stops you from starving, and it benefits the community as a whole because it decreases social disruption. So, what have we seen? What have we seen? Robodebt, state terrorism. We saw the government of the day create a system which has been found to be illegal, unconstitutional, to harass tens of thousands of Australians on social security benefits. This was an ideological attack on people of the on social security benefits. It's it supported the conservative government's you know, leaners and lifters philosophy. The lifters were those who exploited the population and made money out of exploiting the population. And the leaners were those who received a social security benefit. This was state terrorism, which affected tens of thousands of people. 
not only causing unnecessary distress and in many cases depression and in many cases hopelessness and a smaller percentage suicide attempts and a smaller percentage still successful suicide attempts. What is terrorism but creating a system which causes terror within a section of the population? This wasn't terrorism from some religious fundamentalist group. This wasn't terrorism from some nationalist, you know, agenda. This was terrorism which was based on class divisions. Those people who received Social Security benefits were the targets. And it was terrorism because it was state it was state terrorism because it was state created. It was administered by the state. It was created by the state. It was approved by the parliamentary process. Think about it. These people, unfortunately, are indemnified from prosecution because under the parliamentary legislation, parliamentarians cannot be prosecuted for the consequences of decisions which are made by parliament. If you set up a robo-debt scheme and send out your goons to heavy people to pay back so-called imaginary debts, I'm sure you'd end up in prison. I know I would end up in prison if I started knocking on people's doors and saying, oh, wow, that's a nice shop you've got here. It'd be a pity if something happened to it, but if you can give me 100 bucks a week, I'll make sure nothing happens to your shop. I'd be put away. And so I should be put away. I'm just, a, you know, I'm just a fug. But this is more. This is state terrorism. And I think we need to give it the name that it deserves. Robo-debt makes it sound like a nice little thing. You know, it's a little bit like, you know, gas chamber. It's a nice word. Robo-debt is state terrorism because it's impossible as we saw in many cases that are going through the Royal Commission it's impossible for the individual in Australian society to be protected against the arbitrary exercise of state power because in this country we have no constitutional protection for the individual against the arbitrary exercise of state power. Think about it. We're the only liberal democracy, so-called liberal democracy in this, on this planet, that has no protection for the individual. And RoboDebt highlighted how defenceless people were, especially when lit and again, this is legislation, this isn't bureaucracy, this is legislation which was passed by Parliament. All those parliamentarians who are responsible for passing this legislation should not only hang their head in shame, but they should lose their superannuation benefits. That hurts them. It would hurt them. Losing their superannuation benefits. 
And there is no better superannuation benefits than a federal parliamentarian's superannuation benefits. They may not be able to be prosecuted, but maybe there's some legal loophole where they can lose their superannuation benefits. It's not just the people who are the architects of the system. It's not just the bureaucrats who put the system in place and who prosecuted the system. It's much more than that. It's every single member of parliament who voted for that legislation. I mean, they talk about individual responsibility. Yeah, individual responsibility. I'm responsible for what I do. And if I do the wrong thing, well, the state will ensure that I'm responsible. So if they're involved in state terrorism, and our anti-terrorist laws are very, very strict, 25 years for belonging to a, you know, assisting a terrorist organisation, mandatory jail, why shouldn't these people be responsible for legislation which is akin to little more than state terrorism? You're listening to The Anarchist World this week broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network. This program is streaming on 3cr.org.au. The program is podcast. It will be podcast within the next week. You can access the podcast by going to 3cr.org.au. That's 3cr.org.au. My name is Joseph Scar. If you've got any complaints, give me a ring. Happy to uh, sort it out with you. 0439 395 489. 0439 395 489. Do you think I'm gilding the lily a bit? Well, I don't think I am. I don't think I am. If you set up a bodgy scheme which was totally illegal and unconstitutional and you caused terror among people because of that, what do you think should happen to you? All right. What do you think would happen? What do you think would happen? Well, obviously, you'd be prosecuted. You wouldn't be allowed to get away with it. Every person you know in the world will be complaining about what you were doing. But when the government of the day does it, ah, let's not worry about it. Let's move on. Now, tomorrow is Invasion Day. And, you know, people will be going to different things on Invasion Day. But I think what people need to understand is that we... that there is, a, there is a play, there is something going on. Now, those of you who remember the Republican debate will see how John Howard and his government beautifully split the Republican movement. This was almost a quarter of a century ago and we still got a Jenny Flex to uh, Charlie the Third. The only good thing about Charles the Third is Charles the First Charles made an untimely end, but that's a different story. And we've seen the same thing now for The Voice. Now, there will be a referendum in the near future regarding a, uh, an Indigenous or a First Nations voice to Parliament. 
Now, this is a constitutional arrangement. And if you want a change in the constitution, you need to go to the people. That's what happens in this country. It's only the people that can change the constitution. It's only the government of the day which can put the question to the people. The whole purpose of a referendum is to give the government of the day direction. For example, the 1967 referendum was not about giving Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders the vote. It was about allowing the federal government to take over from the various state governments which had been involved in apartheid-like practices for decades. And in 1967, the Australian people, over 90%, agreed. And since then, we've seen many changes. Not all positive, not all negative, but many changes. Legislative changes, because the federal government has been able to overrule state governments. And currently, as I speak, there are a number of court cases around this country, especially in Victoria, where Aboriginal groups are actually challenging state government decisions. And they do that through the federal court. So what are we seeing today? We are seeing a brilliant divide and rule campaign. Now, the Uluru Statement from the Heart in 2017 had three demands. Truth-telling, voice to parliament, treaty. Now, we've seen the National Party show their true colours and are against an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice, a First Nations voice to Parliament. Mr Dutton is brilliant. He's at his brilliant best. When he talks about that detail, we want that detail. We want that detail. We want that detail. The detail is very simple. The voice to Parliament is not a legislative body. It's not an executive body. It's not a body that administers grants like ATSIC did. It's a body which provides advice to Parliament. And why a referendum? Because, as we saw with ATSIC, the government of the day can abolish any organisation which is not incorporated in the Australian Constitution. So the voice to parliament is a very simple concept. It's about First Nations people having a mechanism via which they can influence legislation which is going to be passed or debated which concerns them. That's all it is. It's nothing radical. Now we're seeing an unholy alliance, and this is what concerns me because... Because the goodwill that's been created in the Australian community over the last 20 to 30 years is about to dissipate. Because what we are seeing is sections of the Aboriginal community, not the Torres Strait Islander community, but the Aboriginal community, talking about a treaty before a voice. What's the point? What is a treaty? Who do you sign a treaty with? You sign a treaty with the government of the day, whether it's on a clan basis, whether it's on a, you know, it's, it, it's on a nation basis. When you do the treaty, it really has nothing to do with the voice to parliament. They're two different issues. 
totally two different issues. And what I can see is another Republican debacle where the conservative forces in this country assisted by some Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders, mainly, you know, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders, see this particular referendum issue killed off at the next referendum. And what does that mean? It means, as we saw with the Republican debate, the discussion regarding the need for change, the need for a treaty, the need for compensation, the need to pay the rent, goes back on the back burner. And it could go back on the back burner for decades. So let's get our priorities right. You're listening to The Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia via the Community Radio Network. Ah, the detail, the detail, the detail. Unbelievable. New Zealand, October election. Now, look, people may have been shocked by the resignation of the... um, the uh, former Prime Minister of uh, New Zealand. I can understand people having enough. It's not an easy job. There is something different about the New Zealand parliamentary system. A bit more radical than a voice to parliament, a little even more radical than a treaty because they do have a number of treaties in Aotearoa. The thing is that there are seats reserved for Māori voters in New Zealand. Parliamentary seats, are, I think there's four parliamentary seats, I could be wrong, could be six, reserved for specifically for Maori voters in New Zealand. Normally these seats are irrelevant, especially if a, a government has a clear majority. But most of the changes which have occurred in New Zealand as far as the advancement of Maori interests are concerned have occurred during periods when the Māori bloc in Parliament actually held the balance of power. Now, currently, because of economic issues, it seems that the New Zealand election is a, you know, a line-ball affair. And we may be finding or seeing the 1930s been replayed out in New Zealand history when the Māori seats held the balance of power and they negotiated to have a number of legislative legislation go through Parliament which obviously assisted the Māori population. So it'll be interesting to see what happens at the October election. If it's a neck-and-neck election and the Māori seats will determine which side rules and the price they're going to have to pay to rule, it may mean that we may see a rapid change in the fortunes of New Zealand's First Nations people. It's a possibility to look at. So if you're interested in elections, this is something to look at. Medicare. Sad, isn't it? Another nail in the Medicare coffin. Another nail. Privatisation at its best. Another nail.
Well, the whole purpose of a universal healthcare system is to give people access to healthcare and to remove pressure on underfunded, understaffed accident emergency units around the country. Now, over the last 30 years, we have seen a concerted campaign to destroy Medicare. Conservative forces in this country have never forgotten that when the Whitlam Labor government introduced uh, Medibank, initially it was called, and then Medicare in 73, 74, there was resistance from all aspects of society. Now, as I've said before on this program, you want a good health system or a health system you've got access to. What we need to do is set up, re-establish community, publicly owned community health centres as the backbone of the healthcare system. Community owned community healthcare centres, which there were a significant number in the 70s and 80s, most of which have been privatised, there's only a few left these days, are a port of first call, not only for medical treatment, but also paramedical treatment, psychologists, physiotherapists, nurses, and the list goes on and on. They're able to provide integrated services. For the federal government to think putting $750 million into some extension of the privatised sector and the healthcare sector is going to solve the issues, it's not. What we'll see is what we've seen with the National Disability Insurance Scheme and with aged care and with early childhood development, we will see a small number of uh, corporations dominate the field and suck out and have a direct road to the Treasury without providing the necessary services and care for people. So a federal government direct investment in community health centres could go a long way in relieving the pressure on accident emergency department and public hospitals around the country. It also goes a long way in relieving pressure on private providers and it also introduces competition in the private medical sector. Unfortunately today, the days of, you know, one or two doctors in a clinic have gone. Just like we saw in Alice Springs where the outstations were closed down, defunded, forcing people back into the communities, we've seen this in the, in the healthcare sector. What we've seen is corporations dominating the private health sector. For example, form large medical firms own 40% of general practices in this country. And they are the ones who, to a significant degree, well, they're there to make a buck, and they're the ones that are, exploit the system. So having publicly owned community health centres that have got all the services incorporated into them is a good way of resolving this issue. The problem is, in this country, as I keep saying over and over again, because we're a rich country, is that we don't have the resources. We don't have the political courage as a people 
to force our governments to put pressure on that small section that own the means of production, distribution, exchange and communication to pay their fair share of taxes. The problem isn't, as the federal government fought in the past, people on social security benefits. The problem is corporate welfare. That's right. Corporate welfare in this country is the problem which stops us creating community health centres. It's the problem which stops us resourcing outstations and providing accommodation to people. It's the issue which pauperises a third of the population who are forced to survive on community health, on uh, social security benefits. It pauperises 80% of people who are financially bound to financial institutions to keep a roof over their heads. And the list goes on and on. It's because of corporate welfare. So what is corporate welfare? Well, corporate welfare comes in many guises. As we've seen in the gas industry, especially on the east coast of Australia, we have corporations which have a monopoly on the extraction of gas. We have corporations which receive government rebates for existing. We have corporations which pay minimal, if any, no taxation. One third of corporations paid no tax in the last financial year. And I'm not talking about, you know, mum and dad businesses. I'm talking about large, multi-million, multi-billion corporations. We have a system where we allow our natural resources, the country's natural resources, to be exploited. That's right. To be exploited by a handful of corporations who pay minimal taxation. We have a taxation system which allows people to get a tax refund for owning more than one home. That's corporate welfare. We have a, t a system where corporations get fuel excise. You know, they get a cut on their fuel bill, courtesy of the, of the Australian taxpayer. So there will never be enough resources in the community to deal with the problems we should be able to deal with. Problems like homelessness, problems like access to education, where we've got private charities raising money to send Australian kids to get a public education. Criminal. It's criminal. It's just criminal. Well, we have people waiting years for necessary operations. Again, it's criminal. It's not as if we're some country where we've got no resources, that where we have to rely on foreign investment. We don't have to rely on foreign investment. We have the resources there. It's just extraordinary when you think about it. What do we get in return for these monopolies and corporate monopolies actually extracting these minerals? Peppercorn rent. Peppercorn rent. No wonder we're never able to address the problems we should address as a nation. It's just extraordinary. What's extraordinary is not that it's occurred. I mean, fancy getting a tax rebate for owning shares 
<laughs> Extraordinary. Where else in the world can you do it? Where else in the world have they opened up their residential market to foreign investors to artificially elevate prices, you know, and, and tie people to mortgages for 40 bloody years? Where else in the world do we allow this to happen? And we allow this to happen because we've become a very gullible society. Very gullible. It's not a criticism of you in personally, but it's a general criticism. We believe that the way forward is to push the private investment for private profit model. We believe, and it's a belief system, it's not a system based on fact, but it's a belief system. We believe that if we remove regulation, and that's what I mean regulations, which have been built up to protect working people, if we remove those regulations, and we believe that if we privatise public assets, we give away public assets at peppercorn rent, give them away, peppercorn prices, and we believe that if we open up the economy to the world, and we believe that we allow corporations to dominate every aspect of our existence, that, that somehow, somehow, the profits will trickle down and we'll be able to deal with the issues that we need to deal with as a, a community. It's a belief system. It's a little bit like believing there's somebody in the sky who cares about us. It's a little bit like believing that a blue-eyed cat, you know, owns the universe or is the universe. It's a little bit like believing that the earth is flat, all right? It's a belief system. So we have accepted these fundamental building blocks of our society. We have accepted the idea that if something is public, it's second rate, it doesn't provide services. We, have, we believe that if we allow corporations to grow bigger, that somehow there'll be more competition and we will benefit. It's just extraordinary. It's in a belief system. It's nothing more, nothing less. As human beings, we are capable of much, much, much better than believing this rot. And while we believe this rot, that the way forward is to give the private sector its head, nothing will change. As I said last week, if you want to live in a capitalist society, a private investment for private profit society, let's kneecap it. Let's increase the amount of essential services which are provided by the public. Let's create a mutual, mutual, mutualism as part and parcel of the economy, collectives and cooperatives. Let's have seeding funding for collectives and cooperatives. When you've got collectives and cooperatives, public essential services and the private sector competing, that's when you've got real competition and you get a lid on prices, and you stop people making extraordinary profits at the expense of individual Australians. But again, it's, it's a different mindset. And for every minute of every day, for everything we watch, whether it's social media, whether it's legacy media, whatever it is, every conversation is laced with the idea 
that deregulation, privatisation, corporatisation, you know, and globalisation is the way forward. That the only way forward is to create ever-increasing profits irrespective of the human, social, environmental costs. And while we have this belief system, and it's just that, it's nothing more than a belief system, nothing will change. And people say, oh, why don't things change? Well, things can't change. Well, people have this belief system. And it's our role, by looking at what happens around us, to try to break down that belief system. For example, currently, and again, I never thought I'd be speaking about this, we are finding ourselves in a pharmaceutical wilderness. We are hostages to the privately owned pharmaceutical corporations. And we've now reached the ridiculous situations where basic antibiotics are no longer available. And every time I write a bloody script, I've got to think, is this available? If this is not available, is there an alternative? If there is no alternative, what else can I do to assist this particular person? It's ludicrous. Most of these medications are not even under patent. They're under outside the 25 or 20-year patents. They can be freely manufactured. But they're not freely manufactured because they're not creating a big enough profit for these pharmaceutical corporations who rely on other medications, which they've got a patent on, to bolster their profits, to make them some of the most profitable organisations on the planet. So why don't we have a publicly owned pharmaceutical manufacturing sector? It doesn't even have to be involved in research. It's just a matter of creating those particular drugs. They're not under patent. They're easy to manufacture. It's about having the resources to create these publicly owned pharmaceutical uh, centres around the country to provide basic pharmaceuticals. But you see, in the debate, because we have a belief system, we never talk about a publicly owned service to provide essential services. It's always about privately owned. Currently, currently, I must say, the people of West Australia are laughing at the rest of us because we took up that model, private investment for private profit, and we privatised essential services across the board. Well, in West Australia, they kept most of their essential services in public hands. And now when it comes to the question of decarbonising the economy, they are in a position, because they're publicly owned, to actually go in that direction. Well, we have to, the rest of the Australia, has to worry about, you know, some private corporation, you know, um, decarbonising, we've got to force them through legislation. It's just extraordinary. Extraordinary situation. I mean, belief systems do create a lot of problems, not just for the people who believe in it, but all, those, all the people around them, and that's what we're seeing. And so while we continue to believe in the private investment for private profit mantra, 
Why will we continue to believe the way forward is through globalisation and corporatisation and privatisation and deregulation? Nothing will change. And that's the issue. Nothing will change. For change to occur, people need to see beyond what they're looking at. It's a little bit like looking at a forest. You look at a forest, you don't see the individual trees. If you look closely at the forest, you begin to see the individual trees. You begin to see the individual trees, you begin to see the way forward, how to get through that forest. When you look at it initially, you think, it's impossible. There is no way I can find a path through that forest. But once you look at the individual trees, the individual structures, then you can find a way forward. And it's the same with the type of society we find ourselves in. We look at it and we think, it's impossible. Nothing will ever change. It's an, but when you begin to look at the individual cogs, the individual blocks, how they're put together, whether they're based on fact or belief, then you begin to see a way forward. You've been listening to The Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia via the Community Radio Network. My name's Joseph Oscano. The program will be podcast within the next week. You can access the podcast by going to 3cr.org.au. You've been listening to The Anarchist World this week, courtesy of Community Radio Station 3CR in Melbourne, 855 on their AM dial. You can email me at info at anarchistage at yahoo.com. You can join public interest before corporate interests by going to pipsi, P-I-B-C-I dot net. You can actually join online. You can do that right now if you're interested in keeping the interests of the many before the interests of the few. Yes, you can even write letters to Post Office Box 20, Parkville 3052. That's right, Post Office Box 20, Parkville 3052. Our YouTube channel, Public Interest Before Corporate Interests. Email info at pipsy.net. Now remember, as I said before, you can look at a forest and just say, there's no way I can go through that and walk away. Or you can look at the individual trees in that forest and find that a pathway through. And that's what change is about. It's about finding that pathway through what seems to be initially an impenetrable forest. Thank you once again for listening to The Anarchist World this week, courtesy of the Community Radio Network on your local community radio station. This program has been streaming live on 3cr.org.au from the studios of 3CR in Melbourne. The program is podcast. It'll be podcast within the next week. 3CR .org.au. Listen in next week to the Anarchist World This Week. Evil minds that plot destruction Sorcerer of death's construction An analysis you'll never hear anywhere else. Anarchist World This Week. Australia's sacred cow slaughterhouse. 10am every Wednesday. Listen to the Anarchist World this week for an up-to-date analysis of local, national and international events. Poisoning their brainwashed minds. Oh, larger!
become a 3CR subscriber today. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 03-9419-8377. Be a part of your community radio station. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.